the protocol is any major policy speech has to be vetted by the State Department, by the Pentagon, by any stakeholder. Kennedy doesn't do that. He doesn't tell anyone he's giving the speech because he doesn't want the Pentagon to water it down and make it more aggressive. So he takes Norman Cousins's ideas, the things he's been writing about for years, polishes them, edits them a little bit, and delivers them. And Khrushchev hears this speech and, to, to compress a little bit, um, agrees to sign the limited nuclear test ban treaty because of this. Welcome to The Neutral Ground. I would like to begin this episode by reciting a brief section from one of President John F. Kennedy's most famous and beloved speeches, his commencement address at American University in Washington, D.C. on June 10, 1963. The topic of his speech is world peace. He states, I'm talking about genuine peace, the kind of peace that makes life on earth worth living the kind that enables men and nations to grow and to hope and to build a better life for their children. Not merely peace for Americans, but peace for all men and women. Not merely peace in our time, but peace for all time. Now, if you were moved by those words, as many people were back in 1963, what you might not know is that a good portion of that speech didn't come from Kennedy or his cabinet advisors. It came from Norman Cousins. If you haven't heard of Norman Cousins or of his tremendous contributions to 20th century culture, we're going to try to fix that problem today with this episode, and we're going to do so through Dr. Alan Pietrobone's excellent book, Norman Cousins, Peacemaker in the Atomic Age. Dr. Pietrobone is an assistant professor of global affairs and chair of the global affairs department at Trinity Washington University at Washington, D.C. He also serves as the assistant director of research at the Nuclear Studies Institute. He normally teaches on U.S. foreign policy, nuclear weapons and arm control, and Cold War history. We're going to be touching upon only a few parts of what is an excellent book. If you enjoy the conversation and my efforts, Please let me know by hitting the subscribe slash follow button, leaving a kind comment for me or my guest, and sharing the episode with a friend. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Alan Pietrobon. Alan, welcome to The Neutral Ground. Now, I have to admit, up front, I knew next to nothing about the gentleman that we're going to discuss today, Norman Cousins. But after reading through your book, Norman Cousins, Peacemaker in the Atomic Age, I can't believe just how much his life is actually intertwined with some of the most important people, events, and discussions of the 20th century. If you don't mind, could you help us set the stage for our discussion today by laying out some biographical information on Norman Cousins for our audience? Yes, absolutely. And it, it's great to be here. I'm excited to talk about this uh, because I spent 12 years uh, researching and writing and, and diving into the life of this man who I, I never met myself. He, he passed long before I came across you know, his existence. Um, but you wouldn't be the only one who, who said, I don't know anything about this or I've heard the name. Um, but it is fascinating, as we'll discuss, how deep he was and how influential he was in, in a period of you know, the mid-Cold War in U.S. history. So 
to go back, um, Norman Cousins, born uh, in Union Hill, New Jersey, about 40 miles outside Manhattan in the year 1915, um, grows up, uh, he, he's born to Jewish Russian immigrant parents. Um, he grows up in New Jersey. He uh, comes of age in the midst of the Great Depression. So uh, his family, basically, his um you know, the formative years come when his family, who had been relatively successful, they owned a few businesses and lost almost everything in the Great Depression. Um, they, they held on to a gas station, basically, that uh, Cousins worked at as, as, a, as a young man. Um, and because of this, he's hitting like graduating high school in the middle of the Great Depression. He partly can't afford to go to college. Um, he starts a couple of times and it, it, it doesn't continue. Um, ultimately, he never officially graduates from, from college, which is hilarious in a way because he would later go on, a stat I saw was to get 300 honorary degrees um, over the case, uh, over the course of his year, his life, um, but never officially graduated. But he ends up taking courses at Columbia University's Teachers College, um, not because he is interested in being a teacher, but in the mid-1930s, that is a really exciting program, an exciting place to, to study and learn in you know, New York when uh, there's all kinds of dark clouds gathering. <laughs> um, you know, the wars coming in Europe, the rise of fascism, the competition with communism, the you know, seeming collapse of capitalism and democracy on the brink. And uh, I suppose to make a long story short, it's in the late 1930s, he, he gets a job um, uh, editing a plumbing magazine. You know, he, he doesn't have a college degree, but he's intellectual, he's smart. Um, people see great promise in him. He transitions then into being a book reviewer uh, for a New York newspaper. And then it happens that in 1940, um, there is this magazine called the Saturday Review of Literature, which at the time is a small, stuffy literature review. It's got about 20,000 subscribers, you know, basically nothing. It's nearly bankrupt, but they're looking for a new editor. And it so happens that the company Cousins is working for shares an office with the Saturday Review magazine. And so he knows the, the you know, editors there. He, he has a good relationship with them. And they hire him. Um, he's 25 years old. He's got a severe stutter. He does not have a college degree. <laughs> um, but they hire him to be the executive editor <laughs> of this magazine. Partly by his own admission, because no one else wanted this job. Uh, no one of any stature wanted to join a tiny bankrupt, nearly, you know, financially struggling. It's not bankrupt uh, magazine. And from there, this is the moment that sort of launches, uh, would eventually launch his career that I, I write in the book that the uh, best decision the Saturday Review ever made was to hire Norman Cousins, which was objectively not a good hire. <laughs> he should not have gotten that job. Um but we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about what then he does with the magazine and what sort of makes him a household name in the 1940s comes during World War II. But Yeah, and you know, it's, it's amazing hearing you go through that biography here too with um, 300, 300 honorary degrees. I think that's probably enough education at that point, right? It's probably enough for your CV. That's, that's quite the education field at that point. Um, but the other thing too I didn't think about until just now is 
it's it's funny because when you you read through the book and you get this great vision of who he is as a person, how hardworking he was, how much he cared about humanity, and how complex of an individual he was as well. The idea of that this was not a desirable position, uh, becoming this editor, and and that he didn't really have a good roadmap for what to do with it even. He had to create this all by himself. It just goes to show sometimes that you just need to take ownership of the job that you're given and make it into something. And of course he truly did, but he had that, he had that kind of work ethic. You can tell from, from your book even to just dive into something and, and see it through in many ways. Um, so let's get into some of the, the specifics here a little bit and, and create even a, a more in-depth framework for cousins. We'll start with world war two because a lot of this, or just, just at the very beginning, because a lot of, of the book deals with atomic weaponry and, and war and, and peace, Cousins had various positions on World War II culture. And it's actually, it's quite complex the way you set it up. You talk about how he was a man torn at the beginning when the Nazis invaded Poland in 1939. He considered himself to be a pacifist, and he certainly tried to live as one, but he knew that Hitler needed to be stopped. Can you expand a little bit on what was going through Cousins' mind in this early time period of World War II prior to America's entrance into the war and its use of atomic weapons? Yeah, absolutely. And, and this is one of the things that even I was sort of torn about in when I dove deep and discovered Cousins, because I knew of him at a surface level as by the 1960s, he is a prominent anti-war, anti-nuclear activist. He, he is a you know, peacemaker uh, in the title of the book. He's the peacemaker of the atomic age. And in the 1930s, he would have been, he would have described himself as a liberal and uh, probably a non-interventionist, which at the time, if you were liberal, it was pretty common that you were like anti-intervention, anti-war. Um, and many of those types of people did not want the United States involved in World War II at all. There was a big non-intervention cohort in the U.S. Um, Cousins, though, uh, the war breaks out um, basically the you know shortly before Cousins takes this new role uh, as editor of this magazine, and he very quickly realizes that yes, as you mentioned, Nazism needs to be stopped. Hitler needs to be stopped, and he does this one eighty. He goes from being a non-interventionist, anti-war pacifist to one of the biggest boosters of the war. Um, later, by the uh, 1944, um, is arguing that we need to bomb Germany into obliteration, that there's a debate going on in society uh, and in both England and America that the carpet bombings of Germany and, and other parts of Europe that we're doing are immoral, are wrong, are evil, that we should not be doing that to civilian populations. And what shocked me was he's arguing, yes, we should, right? We should bomb them even more. Um, that like, if Germany wants us to stop, then the country just needs to tell us like, just give up, right? Then we'll stop bombing. But he comes to realize partly um, before we even know about the Holocaust, before that even really begins early in the war, that he was wrong, that it was easy from the safety of America to talk about anti-war. Um, but once this vicious barbaric war breaks out, um, 
that's that's not a, a viable position anymore. So Cousins, on one hand, luckily um, he is drafted. He, he's twenty five. You know, he, he's young, but he has some health issues, um, and so he's not able to serve in frontline combat. Um, he ends up working for the Office of War Information, doing basically propaganda, pro democracy propaganda. Um, but his work in the, the the sort of military complex, even as not a soldier, starts um, exposing him to the fact of there are these new weapons that have been developed, that this war is, is absolutely barbaric, um, and that the future, even though he's arguing like, fight the war a thousand percent, um, use every weapon at your disposal, He's starting to see by 1944 when the Germans invent the V1 and V2 rockets um, that are being used to, to, to great effect in England that the prospect of wars in the future is way more frightening than what's going on right now. So uh, ultimately, this pacifist becomes extremely hawkish uh, about World War II that we have to keep pressing on. And then... Uh, August 6, 1945, the United States drops an atomic bomb on Hiroshima. And Cousins learns about this the next day when he reads the headline of the New York Times that an atomic bomb has been used. And the thing is, at that moment, no Americans outside of the people directly involved in the Manhattan Project even know what an atomic bomb is. Uh, it's, they, they describe it as this uh, hugely powerful bomb. But it, you know, we bomb on August 6th. There's another one dropped on August 9th. Shortly thereafter, Japan surrenders. And the narrative is the atomic bombs, we dropped them on Japan. They were so scared, they surrendered. Hooray, the war is over. The bombs ended the war. Norman Cousins, though, does another 180 at this moment. <laughs> that He went from arguing for the absolute obliteration bombing of Germany to being one of the first if not the first, it's you know hard to tell exactly. But Cousins, when he learns about the atomic bomb, is horrified by this, um, thinks that this was wrong, uh, immoral, that the United States should not have unleashed this weapon. And 18 days later, well, that night, he goes home and writes a, an editorial that is published 18 days later, um, where the title of which is Modern Man is Obsolete. And he publishes it in this again, stuffy, tiny literature review. It should have gone nowhere. Um, but uh, in today's terms, we would say it went viral, um, that this article ends up being read by 40 million people by one estimate, um, because Cousins articulates this sense of dread over the existence of atomic bombs, that basically science has leapt so far ahead now that we have the ability, individual leaders have the ability to just push a button and obliterate an entire city. But the human like lizard brain that is aggressive and warlike has not kept up with science. <laughs> um, and so we, you know, now man is obsolete. We can wipe out life on earth but our culture has not kept up with, with our sort of ability to wipe out life on earth. We are still warlike and aggressive. And just to give a couple of final points here, in this article, he lays out a, this moment of elation, we should actually be really scared of this moment because A, um, 
the bomb is not going to be kept a secret for long. Uh, the U.S. is arguing like, oh, only the U.S. could do this. Uh, we are the only country that has the wealth and the knowledge and the science to be able to invent a nuclear bomb. No other country can do this, at least for 20 years. President says, no, it, it's going to be other countries are going to race to get a bomb too really quickly. B, that's going to cause an arms race. Like the existence of these weapons is going to cause an arms race. Because of that, we're going to have to build more and bigger nuclear weapons. And because of that, we're going to live in fear of being attacked with nuclear weapons all the time. And finally, because of that, um, countries that have nuclear weapons are going to be able to use them to blackmail and bully other countries. Um, so he basically predicts the Cold War, like predicts what unfolds within the next 20 years. And he does that the night the bomb is dropped. He can just sort of see where this is going and becomes now an anti-nuclear activist that you shouldn't have done this, period. What was particularly, yeah, he, he was able to see the scalability of this moment in the blink of an eye. He understood something has forever changed here in the way that we conduct war. And it was going to be a moment that we could not we could not go back to the to the to the age prior to that. It could only do one of two things. We could slow it down and have a discussion about we shouldn't do this again. We should stop this, or it was going to continue to scale upwards and upwards on on many different platforms, including, as you mentioned, just the pure fear of an everyday life that something like this could be used against you, against you, the citizen, the person at home, even. And in that sense, he, he was quite an amazing individual to be able to see that oncoming fear that would in encapsulate the Cold War for, I mean, a long time. It, it, it just stayed with us. Even, I mean, even I remember Reagan talking about the Cold War and talking about trying to de-escalate. You know, it, 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 it was a real thing. I think young people today who don't have any connection to that time period, sometimes I think they don't really understand because they, they see the they see the 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 cartoons and stuff that talk about, you know, duck and cover under your desk, all that stuff. But you know what? Underneath that was trying to say, let's give people something to do to kind of bring down that fear of of the unknown, of what's going to happen, what's out there, or of the known even, of the destruction that emerged out of Japan as well. Something that I, I, I mentioned the names, some of the biggest names, and in the aftermath of the, of the dropping of the bombs in Japan, Cousins wasn't alone in looking at this as something has forever changed. He actually had relationships and developed relationships with some of the scientists of uh, from the Manhattan Project. Can you talk a little bit about how those relationships emerged in the aftermath and, and what were their concerns at that point? Yeah, and this too is one of those things that is, you know, often overlooked. Um, the fact that, so, so Cousins, uh, what's it, August 18th, publishes this article, puts himself on the map as like this anti-nuclear voice, just, you know, putting out there that this is scary. And there were a number, a, a large number of the atomic scientists themselves, the people developing the atomic bomb for the Manhattan Project, 
who before it is used, when it becomes clear to them that it's going to work, um, because up until then, this was sort of just a theory. We weren't even 100% sure that you could you know, split an atom and cause it to explode. When it gets to the point where they realize it's going to work, um, there's a group of a number of them who beg President Truman not to use it, um, who, and then of course we do, and there's scientists, including the head of the project, J. Robert Oppenheimer, who come to regret their participation in this. They have unleashed, you know, open Pandora's box and unleashed this horror on the world. And they did it because they were genuinely interested in the scientific possibility of this as just sort of raw scientists. But now they've created a potentially world-ending weapon. Um, so a number of these people, um, Oppenheimer included, read Cousins's article and turn to him um, for, for help and advice, basically. Like, how do we get the word out there that we need to be enormously careful going forward? Um, and so it's Cousins who helps, who, who creates, is sort of the epicenter of this grouping of scientists, including Albert Einstein, who writes a letter to Cousins being like, I love what you wrote. You know, I too am scared about the possibility of the future. In fact, it's Einstein who encourages cousins to, to be more vocal about this. Um, so they get together, they have a big fundraising dinner in December of that year, just a couple months later, where they launch um, the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, which is still out there today. They're the guys who do the doomsday clock, the you know two minutes to midnight, um, as an organization for scientists who realize that our scientific knowledge could be used for great evil. And like we need to be careful about what we do with, with science. This isn't just, we're chasing the science anymore for, for discovery's sake. Um, so he comes into contact with huge names in both the scientific field, um, also the political field. This starts putting him on the map as, as an influencer um, of, of atomic ideas. I couldn't help but think as I was reading this kind of section in the book where we're and Einstein was also one of those names that I just went, oh, wow, if Einstein's reaching out to you, um, you're doing something right and you're, you're doing something that's important um, in, in the realm of physics and, and all of this and science in general. I couldn't help but think a little bit about today in terms of the conversations that we're, we're trying to have about artificial intelligence and how people, it seemed to me like what Cousins provided that was so important was Cousins had a way of being very clear with his writing, the clarity of it. And because of that, it seems to me like the scientists went to him to try to say, we have the ideas that we can help you with. We have the science. But what we need is we need that mechanism to be able to get it out to the public and to the politicians in a way that's palatable and makes sense. And I couldn't help but just think to myself, I don't know if we do that well today, to be quite honest with you. A am I crazy in kind of making that that connection a little bit between what was going on then and and maybe our trying to have our discussions of artificial intelligence today? Right. I mean, I think you're entirely on point here that to, to very much unfairly generalized, I will say like even today, scientists often have trouble, any sort of like high level thinker, academics, whoever have trouble translating that into a publicly understandable you know, language. Um, and it is 
the scientists who are like, yeah, cousins help us bring this to the public. Um, and one of the things he does in that moment is, okay, I am now the editor of this magazine. He, he moves to the top spot midway through the war. I'm going to take this stuffy literature review and turn it into a magazine of like important ideas, political ideas. So he basically turns it over to the atomic scientists and, and creates a whole section in this literature review called The Atomic Age. And we're going to discuss these things. He both brings in scientists to write for the magazine and then he writes editorials himself in this, as you saw, way that just sort of punches through um, and makes people understand this high level thinking. Um, do we do that today? No, <laughs> I mean, not as well. Um, I mean, we, we get on the artificial intelligence and thinking from a couple of months ago, there was the, was it a Google engineer who blew the whistle of like, this is dangerous. The artificial intelligence is here and, and we're not really ready for it. And he got fired and we haven't heard from him since. Um, and I'm sure there, I mean, I know there are people writing on this, but um, I think it's different. I think what Cousins was able to connect was that this rapid pace of technology in all fields is suddenly going to intersect. Um, and, and where the intersection happens is he, he's afraid in 1944 of these German V2 rockets um, and, and talks about them as robombs. That like when you have a weapon that you don't need a human to pilot anymore, when you can just push a button and target a city, it makes it much easier to use that weapon if you don't have to think about the costs in human life to your side. And now what happens if we take an unpiloted, you know, automated rocket and put a nuclear warhead on it and with the push of a button can just launch it at a pre-targeted city, it makes, the way he puts it is, you know, always throughout history, leaders have had the power to maim and start wars and send knights in armor with their swords killing people but never has a single leader had the power to just expunge life by pushing a button at almost no cost um, because it's cheap to build, comparatively cheap to build a rocket and attach a nuke on it and wipe out a city. Um, so I, I, to back to the point you made earlier, you know, since the end of the Cold War, I would argue up until a couple of months ago with the Russia-Ukraine situation um, where now nuclear weapons are back in the headlines, we sort of forgot about them. I had a family member when I was writing this book and talking about it who said like, well, but who cares? The Cold War ended in 1991. I thought we got rid of nuclear weapons then. It's like, no, we, we did not get rid of nuclear weapons. They've just been pushed off to the side of the back of people's minds. Um, so I kind of wish we had another Norman Cousins today raising the alarm of like, this is dangerous and we don't think enough about it. Yeah, I thought about that as well um, throughout the book. A situation today where we're bringing up, you know, Cold War politics again and that kind of fear, um, which is a legitimate fear and one that, again, Cousins could see. From the moment, you know, we, we dropped the bomb, the moment that our relations with um, the Soviet Union, with Russia, where we had that time period of, can't, let's repair this as quickly as possible so that we can try to create a history of good relations that can leave us in a good, you know, a, a good state of mind as, as two different countries. 
you know, something that that also struck me with with Cousins is he would go from one moment saying it's necessary, that hawkishness that would come out sometimes. It's necessary to to end this as quickly as possible. Um, but then at the same time, after we dropped the atomic weapons on Japan, here's Cousins coming in with this humanitarian effort that was... I mean, just absolutely amazing. His his purpose being to try to find homes for these children who were left with no one. Can you can you talk a little bit about his humanitarian efforts after the war is is finished? I, I can, and and if I can go down a rabbit hole for a second with a, maybe a personal anecdote. Please, Not, please do. Yeah, because it just sparked a thought when you were talking there that the the. Cousins the pacifist becomes a hawk, then becomes a pacifist again. And uh, you know, I teach international relations and foreign diplomacy is my profession. And I, when I wrote the book and was dealing with cousins at that moment, I, I it was hard for me to grapple with. Like, but how does someone like, you know, there are flip floppers how we describe it. How do you change your like strongly held views so quickly? You know, going from a pacifist to arguing to firebomb cities that 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 didn't connect with me. And I, teaching before February 24th, 2022, the date will become important in a moment, are told my students, like, diplomacy is always the answer. Like, war is when diplomacy fails, and we should always try to, like, pull back on the military and put our diplomats forward. Um, you know, I would have been against military spending uh, at the high levels that the U.S. does. And then Russia invades Ukraine. Right in in a clear moment of aggression and unwarranted aggression, and all of a sudden, I came to realize, oh, I understand how cousins could do this now. Like war changes things, you know. Before this, I would have argued, you know, I I, I was I would have considered myself a pacifist in the vein of a Norman cousins, but sometimes violent resistance in the face of aggression is necessary, right? Like. We don't, we would never disparage the, the in World War II, the British Spitfire pilots and the anti-aircraft gunners who against all odds during the Blitz violently resisted the Nazis when they stood alone and won, right, and, and succeeded. Um, and so suddenly my entire worldview got, got turned upside down. And like, uh, I would, I can see how in a moment of war, things both become muddled and also just exceedingly clear um, of what needs to happen. I think Cousins went through that same mental exercise um, that I did. But then, you know, the atomic bomb happens again. Like this huge escalation changes everything again uh, in his calculation. So, so to actually answer your question there, you know, of what I was grappling with personally, here, here's Cousins. Um, it's now 1949. He has been arguing for four years that not only the use of the bomb was wrong, um, that this is very dangerous going forward. They're proposing, uh, uh, Cousins is not just proposing like uh, or outlining the problem, atomic bombs are bad. He's also trying to propose a solution, which at the time is this notion that has completely fallen to the wayside, this notion of world government, um, that things like atomic weapons are so beyond the nation state's ability to control that we need a global federation of governments. And 
the United Nations at the time is brand new and people have a lot of excitement that what the U.S. should do is turn over its nuclear weapons to a group like the United Nations, that only supranational organizations will have the ability to control these weapons. Um, so that's solution one. It never comes to pass. The U.S. dabbles with it a little bit, um, turning atomic weapons over to international control. And then, as governments do, they realize, no, we want we want these weapons. <laughs> we want them for ourselves, <laughs> um, of course. So anyway, it's 1949 now. Um, Norman Cousins, as a journalist, travels to Hiroshima to, to report on uh, the situation on the ground. And the city at the time is still destroyed. They're, they're trying to recover, but it's tough. Um, Japan's under occupation. There are, like, people are literally starving to death. There's food shortages. It's not a good scene. But what strikes Cousins is he's traveling around and he notices a whole bunch of little children just, just wandering the streets. And he comes to learn that those are kids who were orphaned by the atomic bomb. Their parents were killed. And he's really affected by this because he's always thought this was wrong. And now I have the proof that a U.S. government decision to use this weapon has created thousands of orphans in Japan that are just you know, starving in rags on the streets. So he launches a program called the Moral Adoptions Program, where we, we see this today where the Americans can, can donate some money per month to clothe and house and feed and educate these Japanese orphans. And this program becomes wildly successful um, beyond his own, his own thoughts, um, as Americans too have come to want uh, to atone for the use of the atomic bomb. This is the thing we did to them in a way that was unnecessary. We could have won the war other ways. We need to to, to help. Um, so he uh, launches that in 1949, becomes very successful. He ends up adopting um, a Japanese woman himself and, and bringing her to live in the United States. Um, and that morphs into the second part of the project where a couple years later, he goes back to Hiroshima again and is introduced to a number of teenage, early 20-something women who are left with the physical scars of being exposed to the blast. Because part of what Cousins is arguing um, is that some people, including President Eisenhower himself, are saying atomic bombs are no different than any other weapon. Like throughout human history, we've developed bigger and more powerful weapons. This is just another iteration that we should Eisenhower famously says, I don't see why we wouldn't use an atomic bomb just like we would use a bullet um, in a war. Cousins and others recognize, um, but Cousins really pushes this idea that no, they are different. We can see that partly because if you are exposed to the initial blast of an atomic weapon and you survive it, um, but uh, um, you are directly exposed, it leaves these burns on your body that never heal. Um, so unlike a chemical burn or a burn with fire that will heal, you'll be left with a scar. Um, these nuclear scars are just basically open wounds. They, they don't heal. Um, and these weapon or these women are disfigured, are deformed, are, are horribly scarred, and therefore are basically shunned from Japanese life. Um, they aren't given medical, well, the, the second order of this is, um, the United States, after the bombing, establishes a research institute called the Atomic Bomb Casualty Commission, 
where Japanese people who were in the area and exposed to the to the bomb are required to come in and scientists, Japanese and American scientists, study these open wounds and these scars they have on them, um, but does not treat them. Um, we are studying them because we want to figure out how to treat in the future if ever there's another nuclear war, but we aren't offering them treatment. So Cousins thinks, this is horrible. We've left these women completely scarred. Um, we are studying them like guinea pigs and not helping them. That This is a, a, a moral violation. Um, so long story short, he, he launches another program to bring a group of women to the United States to get the medical treatment that is being denied them in Japan. And through this, through exposing this to the American public, manages to get a law passed in Japan um, providing treatment for, for victims of the atomic bomb. I, I delighted in the fact that I saw, um, you, you mentioned in the book, that the the just the the level of popularity for especially the adoption of the young children, um, and and even cousins received another uh, letter from from someone Helen Keller, actually reached out to him to sort of thank him for the work that he's doing to give him some some moral support as well to know that you you're doing the right thing. You you mentioned in this section of the book that the. Adoption program, well, maybe that's not the right terminology, but the program where he's working with the young women was not as successful in, we'll say, in measurable terms. Um, why do you think that's the case? Why did that all of a sudden have a different ring to it than the original one? Um, because the U.S. government tries to stop it. Um, in, in, in part. Um, it, it's, it's not as successful, A, in raw numbers. He brings 25 women over, um, partly because it's, it's very expensive. Um, um, th these women stay in the U.S. for a year, um, are treated at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York, um, very expensive medical treatments. Um, a lot of the, the doctors have donated their time pro bono and all of that, but it's still... Um, they can't treat that many. There are thousands affected. They only treat 25. Um, and the whole time, the United States State Department attempts to shut this program down. Um, they literally, uh, um, so Cousins manages to get the U.S. Air Force to fly the women over to the United States because he basically befriends the the, so the commander, the general, General Hall, uh, the commander of the Far East Command, um, befriends him and gets him to donate an Air Force plane. And when the State Department learns that, like, wait a minute, you're using U.S. military assets to bring women over to treat them from the U.S. military bombing them, that is not okay. We cannot give the impression that we are, um, what's the word I'm like, like implicated here, that, that, that we should treat victims of war, right? This was a war. Um, so, the State Department sends a cable. This is one of the like the harrowing stories. I can see this in a, like a film scene if this ever gets made into a movie. Of um, a cable comes in, um, the plane with the women loaded is idling on the runway. The generals out there like seeing them off. A guy comes running out with the cable, ordering the flight to be canceled. The general reads it, um, pauses for a minute, says. Oh, I'm sorry, son. I forgot my glasses. I, I, I can't read this. And like waves the plane off um, and the plane takes off. <laughs> um, so he ignores this order and lets it go. And the State Department realizes that now 
calling the plane back and forcing it to land would cause a public relations disaster, so they let it continue. But the U.S. government is not on board with this. They do not want to give the impression, A, that we treat victims of war um, when we were fighting war, but especially, B, that we treat atomic victims, because that, too, would indicate that these weapons were somehow different and worse than just bombing. It's like we don't treat the victims of Dresden or Berlin when we bombed. Um, so it, it's partly just a matter of scale and partly uh, uh, government interference that, that I've, I've found and documented with evidence from, from the cables that they're trying to stop this program, but also recognizing that Cousins is a public figure. He is the head of this magazine. He can cause a commotion you know, by publishing articles um, too. So we've got to tread light yeah, and of course he didn't just he wasn't just concerned with Japan. His his concern was also with Russia as well, with with Soviet Union. And so l- let me ask you this question. Let's fast forward maybe a little bit in the history here. Cousins took he took great, you know, a lot of steps to to really kind of repair, build that relationship with with Russia. And I have to imagine that it did not always endear him to people at the time. So my, my question is kind of in his pursuit, especially, uh, you know, in this, this new Cold War emerging environment to try to create these great relations, did he get a lot of pushback or were there maybe perhaps more people who actually thought this is not a bad idea actually to try to get these better relations going? He did get some pushback. Um, not as much as I might have expected before, but uh, there are certainly, when he's helping Japanese victims of the atomic bomb, there are people who are writing him saying, this is like, what are you doing? This is a terrible idea. Um, they are our enemy. Just four years earlier, they were you know, killing us. And another one wrote in like, well, why aren't you concerned about the orphans from Pearl Harbor? Uh, you know, which is a valid point, sure. <laughs> um, but overwhelmingly, um, not only is it you know, Helen Keller, but the, the co-pilot of the plane that dropped the bomb donates money. You know, it, it's just overwhelmingly Americans want to do something to atone for this because they see it as we did something that was different. Um, even I think it was Admiral Leahy uh, of the you know U.S. military at the time wrote later that something to the I'm paraphrasing here, something to the effect of. Um, by using the atomic bomb, we adopted the the moral uh, of the barbarians of the Dark Ages or something like that. Um, so that's Japan. Then by the late 1950s, he's getting more prominent. The Saturday Review is growing in subscribers. It's up to about 200,000 people now. So it is exponentially grown as people are attracted to, to Cousins' ideas. Um, and one of his his sort of worldviews is um, not just we need like international control of these weapons, but the most pressing thing now that nuclear weapons exist and now that after 1949, the Russians have won too, um, we must prevent another war from breaking out. We That is job one. How do we do that? We need better relations with the world, specifically with our adversaries. We need better relations with the Soviet Union. That 
Yes, we might disagree about how to run a society and how to structure an economy, but that doesn't matter. We don't need to have a Cold War over this. So he makes great effort and has great success um, in one of these bold initiatives. He, he ends up talking to President Eisenhower in 1958, um, and Eisenhower made some comment about like, I wish someone could talk to the Russians. You know, I can't, but I wish someone could. Cousins basically is like, I could, um, you know, can I, can I run with this idea? And he organizes a, a conference that becomes the, the Dartmouth Conference, bringing Soviet citizens to the United States, pairing them with American, you know, prominent politicians and writers and, and journalists um, for two weeks-ish of discussions about the problems that face the world. So Cousins becomes one of the first people to, to get Americans and Soviets uh, uh, together in a room to talk about the arms race and, and, and issues facing the two countries and talk about the big ideas of the world and literature. They're talking about all kinds of stuff. Um, this endears him to Premier Khrushchev who is also looking for ways to connect, um, you know, Americans see Khrushchev as the great evil dictator of the Soviet Union trying to take over the world, but he wasn't. He was actually basing his approach on what he called peaceful coexistence, that we too, like cousins, think we can peacefully coexist. So he starts getting these connections to the Soviet Union. Um, by now, Cousins is a prominent anti-nuclear activist. Um, the Soviets are pushing for a, a test ban treaty. Um, Cousins comes to their attention that way too. So um, all the while, I think your question was like, are people against this? Yes, um, there are people who are screaming that, that Norman Cousins is a communist, that he should be investigated by the FBI. Um, I have his FBI records. Actually, they're sitting in that binder right down there on the desk. Um, I, I got through Freedom of Information Act, uh, Norman Cousins's FBI file. It is 480 something pages long um, because the FBI investigated him. He, here is an American arguing at the height of the Cold War that we should have better relations with the Soviet Union. They're, you know, they're thinking there's something fishy going on there but they conclude again and again and again, they have multiple investigations of him over his life, that no, actually, he, he's genuinely working to further American foreign policy. Um, which, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll let you, you know, you can, you can jump in there. No, 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 it's, 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 it's amazing. I, I mean, the amount of work that he did, and all the while, there are these moments that pop up um, that only seem to make it even more important. You had mentioned earlier, um, Eisenhower's remarks about like, well, why wouldn't we use this? You know, this is, you know, it's like using a bullet. But then on, on March 1st, 1954, we get the Bravo test and we see, you know, U.S. soldiers are, are actually exposed to this, this fallout in the Marshall Islands. And that's one of these moments that, that prompts Cousins to, to do what he does best, to write. And you mention in this in this editorial, he has this proposal for a treaty, and I believe this is the treaty you were just kind of referring to. Am I right? Can you talk a little bit about about what that treaty entailed? What was in it? What was its its ultimate goal? 
Yeah, yeah. This is a moment where sort of everything again becomes clear to cousins. So the this Bravo series of tests, the the short version is the US tests a new nuclear weapon. Um, they they evacuate a zone of a radius of I think 200 miles, they detonate the weapon. And it runs out of control. It ends up being way bigger than they had calculated um, and therefore goes beyond the exclusion zone and contaminates American soldiers, kills uh, some Japanese fishermen who are like in the area, not to mention you know, eventually poisons and kills a whole bunch of Marshall Islanders, you know, long story short here. Um, and by this point, it's becoming increasingly clear, not just the cousins, but others that it's not just the, the detonation, it's not just a bomb that's the problem. It's the fact that every time you detonate one of these bombs, it spews radiation into the air. Um, and in earlier years, scientists knew that, we knew radiation existed, but they basically had concluded that radiation is kind of like, to put it simply like smoke from a campfire, that like, yes, if you inhale it directly over the campfire, it'll kill you. But if you're a mile away, the smoke dissipates and it's not a problem at all, that radiation dissipates and becomes harmless. Well, it doesn't become harmless. We come to see, um, and it can contaminate and kill people far, far, far away. Um, not just that, but don't remember the timeline, right around the same time, it's being discovered that radiation like mercury concentrates itself in the food chain. Um, that this radiation in the atmosphere gets in rain clouds, rains down, let's say, on a farm field in Iowa, um, a, a cow comes along. So now like the, the corn is absorbing that radiation. It's in the corn now. You feed that corn to a cow. It's in the cow now. You milk that cow and bottle it and put it on the grocery store shelves. That milk is radioactive. And when humans drink it, it is now concentrated in your body. Um, and the biggest danger is that some of these radioactive elements mimic calcium in the human body. So your body uses radioactive elements to build your bones and build your teeth and all of that. So it like Im implants in you this radiation that will now forever be there. Um, that becomes known. Um, so what Cousins is arguing is just the very testing of these weapons, the continued development is poisoning the earth, um, is killing humans in a way that affects our DNA. Radiation degrades your DNA, causes cancer and all of this. Um, that he turns this into, so not only is it, is it poisoning the environment that we all live in, he turns this idea of national security. The US government is arguing, doesn't matter, it's about national security. We need to test these weapons to keep us safe. Cousins is saying, it's not about national security. This is a moral issue, that it is wrong and immoral that the United States and the Soviet Union to keep themselves safe are poisoning the atmosphere that people, you know, that are, and it's killing Japanese fishermen who have nothing to do with this and, and are not protected by, you know, um, these, well, technically they are, but anyway, that's a whole other thing, not protected by these weapons. Um, so this leads to a push um, to ban the testing of nuclear weapons. And the Soviet Union is on board with this. By 1958, Khrushchev comes out and effectively says, yeah, cousins and other anti-nuclear activists, they're right. Um, this, is, this is wrong. And we, the Soviet Union, 
are unilaterally going to stop testing weapons. And the United States, now embarrassed <laughs> that the bad guys, quote unquote, are doing the right thing, decides to, to also join the, the moratorium. Um, but that's just a, a handshake agreement. So now they're trying to come up with a treaty to lock this in. We are going to forever ban the atmospheric testing of nuclear weapons. But like everything, you have hawks in the U.S. arguing that this is going to undermine our national security. This is going to make us weak, that the Soviets are going to lie and cheat and still develop weapons. And this is gonna, all the same stuff we're familiar with today. And, and to jump ahead a little bit, um, where Cousins comes into this moment is... Um, the Cuban Missile Crisis happens you know, in 1962, uh, the, the biggest crisis the world, the most dangerous crisis the world had, had seen from that moment. And as a side note, Cousins has a small role to play. He's at the moment the missile crisis breaks out. He's in one of these Dartmouth meetings with Soviets and Americans together. And he opens up a line of communication between the White House, the Vatican, because there's a Vatican advisor at the meeting, and the Kremlin and gets the Pope to issue a statement, um, which has an impact on Khrushchev. But uh, for the purpose of this question here, it's after the missile crisis, the crisis scares Kennedy and Khrushchev and they're looking for a way to, to dial back this, this the arms race and Cousins steps in um, and has a huge impact, which we can explore if you want, or if you wanna you know, go down a different tangent there. <laughs> No, I, I like this idea that um, because you you kind of I, I don't know if in, intentionally this happened or unintentionally, but as you're reading through the book, you you start to get this feeling in in cousins that it it went from directly let's say during World War II and then directly after and going into that Cold War environment that it's almost as if cousins' thoughts became increasingly more simplified. And, and I don't mean that negatively. What I mean is he kind of just started seeing, you know what, this is actually just moral. It comes down to a moral problem here, that plain and simple. And one of the sections in your book, and, and it's not necessarily a huge section, but it stuck with me, was in 1957, he finally, I think he he sees this clearly now and he wants other people to see it as a moral issue, issue, not just a political one. So he reaches out to Albert Schweitzer. And Schweitzer's in, in Africa doing his work, and it was well known that he was doing this work. And so he goes there, and I, I think he initially probably thinks that Schweitzer's going to be on his side. But actually, and I'll let you kind of expand here a little bit, actually, that wasn't the case initially, really. So what I'll ask you is, talk a little bit about him him going, if you can, to see Schweitzer, a little bit of the, the issue at the very beginning, but then what will eventually lead to Schweitzer making a declaration of conscience, and how, maybe just end a little bit with talking about, or in this section, with talking a little bit about how it was received. Right, yeah, uh, that, I totally you know, glossed over that point here. Um, but so it, through the 50s, after the Bravo test, and this relates back to your earlier question, that like scientists know what's going on, that they know this is bad. The US government knows what's going on, but is couching this in national security terms that like, in fact, one of the, the directors of one of the bureaucracies explicitly says, look, 
Yes, radioactive radiation poisons people. Yes, we know we can measure that every year about 20,000 more people are going to die of cancer um, in America because we're doing this. But we don't have a choice that like we have to accept the consequences of more people dying in order to not fall behind the Russians and because otherwise they're going to kill us if they can get ahead of us. Um, that for our national security, we are literally going to accept killing people, um, our own people because of this, the, the, which is just a shocking statement. He, he just puts this as a fact of life. Um, so the scientists know what's going on. They know radiation's really dangerous. The American public is starting to agitate by 1957 when it becomes clear that um, radioactive elements are being discovered in children's baby teeth, um, <laughs> which really angers parents. Um, there are protests growing. There is a national organization that Cousins helps co-found that year, um, the, the Committee for a Sane Nuclear Policy. So pressure is building, but still the U.S. government is like, no, we have to keep doing this. Um, so Cousins, in, in being that role of like the translator, he's been harping on this for years and he's got some traction, but he needs someone bigger. To, to get on board with the anti-nuclear um, testing initiative. So he tries to get the prime minister of India, who's like, nah. <laughs> um, and he, he goes to Albert Schweitzer, who was a household name at the time in the 50s, a famed humanitarian um, working at some remote hospital in, in, in the modern day uh, Congo, um, Congo Gabon, uh, somewhere like Western Africa. Um, and he flies into the jungle treks out to this hospital um, to get, because he thinks if Albert Schweitzer like makes a statement, the, everyone, uh, suddenly everyone will be like, oh, well, if he says it, then of course we'll do it. Um, and Cousins explains to Schweitzer, he spends a number of days with him, uh, what, what, you know, radiation is damaging, blah, blah, blah. And Schweitzer at first, as you hint at, has, has really nothing, doesn't really want to do anything with this. He thinks that Cousins is being alarmist, thinks that Cousins is being, you know, too, too hysterical about this, that he's over the top, that it's not a real big deal. Um, so his, his, you know, mission to the jungle to convince Schweitzer fails um, at first. And he leaves, he comes back home. And a little while later, Schweitzer contacts Cousins and says, actually, you were right. Like, I've looked into this now. I've, I've called some friends of mine and like, you're right. Um, and I'm now really scared, and I do think this is a big issue, I'm going to make a declaration of conscience. I'm going to put out what ends up being a radio address um, talking about this uh, and why we need to end nuclear testing. And I'm trying to think, I'm not sure there's a modern equivalent of an, like if someone came out on the scene and said something, if the public would suddenly say like, oh, wow, okay, let's I, that changed my mind. I don't know, maybe you can think of someone who, who who's the Albert Schweitzer equivalent, but. It's tough today, honestly, because we, we look at, uh, I'll say celebrity, uh, because that's kind of really what it is. We look at celebrity so differently today. We have such um, pockets of celebrities. I'm not sure that um, young people who are, who are listening might even be able to understand that idea of that centralized figure who people just trusted uh, Cronkites, things like that, who who would, when they spoke, even if you disagreed with them, you took it seriously, at least, because you thought, at the very least, this is something that I should know about. 
Right. Yeah. I, I thought Cronkite, the most trusted man in the, in America, um, you know, like maybe years ago, like a mother Teresa type figure who, yeah, if, if they speak like, I don't agree with you, but oh, this is clearly serious. Okay. Um, so yeah, Schweitzer gives this, this address um, and it is broadcast around the world on 90 radio stations, except not in the United States. Um, it's unclear why. I, I didn't find any evidence that it was like covered up or jammed or anything. Cousins attributed it to there was a miscommunication over the time that the broadcast was supposed to be, so it got missed. But even then, very few newspapers pick it up. I think the New York Times or one of the national papers runs a small column. But in the U.S., it has no impact at first. Around the world, people pay attention, um, Europe especially. And then, <laughs> essentially, the... United States government shoots itself in the foot where this would have gone over unnoticed, but for the fact that I forget who it was, you know, a government official writes a letter basically trying to shoot down Schweitzer's points in this, trying to refute his points. And that is what sort of brings public attention to this. Like, wait a minute, why are they trying to refute Albert Schweitzer? Uh, um, and that causes then a, an explosion of writing about the, the Declaration of Conscience that puts it on the radar for Americans that this, you know, again, if Schweitzer's saying it, I, I at least should pay attention to this. Yeah, this is one of those moments in the book where if you just, if you're, you're in, engaged in it, you, your mind starts to wander about the, the human element here. And what I mean by that is I felt for cousins throughout this entire section because I mean, very small scale things. Many, most human beings have these moments where they're very excited about something. Something's going to get done. It's going to be, you know, they've been working hard at it. And when he goes to, to visit Schweitzer and Schweitzer's like, no, no, you're just, come on, you're being dramatic. My heart dropped for him, for cousins at this moment. I thought, oh no, this is the exact opposite of what he wanted to hear. But then also when you talk about how it's not, it's not really received hardly at all at first in the United States. That was another moment where I thought he got this great victory of someone to come and say, please understand this is, forget the politics. This is a moral problem that we're going to have to deal with. It's a big one to, to find out that hardly anybody knew about this in America. That must have just crushed him at the moment. But I would imagine all of those relationships that he built up all over the world when they rallied, I, I got to imagine that that lifted up his spirit again to sort of make him think, okay, no, I, I've got to keep pushing. Yeah, and, and we see in his personal letters, there are moments where he has enormous self-doubt, um, where he writes internally and to other readers, say, like apologizing, like, look, I'm, I am harping on this way too much. I, I'm going to pull back in my, I'll, I'll, I'll write about other stuff for a little while. Um, and he does. He, you know, in one case, he decides to just, I think this is the time when he travels to India to sort of get away and, and write about something else. Um, but he always comes back because he just can't get it out of his head that, yeah, this is a moral issue. It's an ethical issue. It's a human health issue that um, American leaders and Soviet leaders don't have the right to use a device that literally changes my DNA if I get exposed to this radiation. And we all are, because every time we test the bomb, the radiation levels increase in the atmosphere. 
Um, I mean, there's wild stuff. If you, this isn't in the book, but um, one of the ways we authenticate historical paintings and tell them the difference between like original paintings from the 1400s versus fakes is if it's a fake made after the 1950s, we can detect radioactive elements in the paint. Um, so we know if it's a modern fake because something painted before 1945, there will be no radioactive elements in it because there's no radiation from nuclear weapons in the atmosphere. Um, so it's literally impregnated in paintings on your wall now. It's, it's out there everywhere. That's fascinating. Oh my God, I would never have thought about that. But whoever came up with that idea, that that's brilliant. Honestly, <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, well, Alan, I'd like to, to draw this to a close by asking you to tell us about how Cousins' tremendous talent for language found its way into the mouth of President John F. Kennedy. Yeah, th this is his the peak of his career, um, where in this moment of, of the arms race and nuclear weapons and the Cuban Missile Crisis, um, it, there comes a point where the U.S. has become, has, and then the Soviet Union have been working for six years on negotiating an anti-nuclear treaty. And they're really close, and then it falls apart. Um, Khrushchev thinks, basically, thinks that the, Kennedy has put an offer on the table um, that is pretty generous to the Soviet Union. Khrushchev accepts the offer. Kennedy says, oh, there was never an offer. Um, and Khrushchev is furious. He's embarrassed himself. He breaks off talks. And Cousins, too, his heart must have dropped, like in those earlier points. They were so close, and it has just fallen apart. And in that moment, Cousins, who has become close with John F. Kennedy now, um, uh, approaches Kennedy and says, can I go to the Soviet Union? Um, I think I can talk directly to Khrushchev and convince him to sign the treaty. This, for some context, is a time when American citizens cannot travel to the Soviet Union, basically at all. Um, uh, American you know, U.S. senators have trouble getting in. This is a closed society. Cousins, though, um, has met with Khrushchev once before the previous year um, in doing some negotiations with the Vatican. They got along. Um, um, Khrushchev has invited him back. So Cousins says, like, look, don't send a diplomat. Don't, don't send, you know, someone else. Send me. I'll go to the Soviet Union. I will speak to your honesty. I'll speak that you really want this treaty done. It's just a misunderstanding. So one of the best stories in the book, the ones that I came across, is not only does Cousins go in this moment of real tension, he takes his daughters with him. Um, he brings his two teenage daughters, partly because the State Department thinks um, if you bring your kids on this trip, it, it's going to soften up Khrushchev. It's going to make it much less likely you're going to get arrested as a spy or something. Um, and Khrushchev likes kids, so like, go. So they arrive um, in Moscow they get flown down to what is modern day Sochi, where the Olympics were a couple of years ago. Khrushchev's got a vacation resort um, on the shore of the Black Sea where they go in and, and Khrushchev is just there waiting to greet him. Um, they have lunch together, they drink together, they, they go for a walk, they play a game of badminton. Um, they ultimately spend seven hours together, this incredibly long uh, time for just a random American citizen and the leader of the Soviet Union to just 
hang out like friends. Um, and Cousins, at first, when they when they actually start talking business, finds Khrushchev is angry. He doesn't want anything to do with this. The moment has passed. It's over. Um, in fact, he's being pushed by his hardliners, his hawks, to be more aggressive towards the United States. We can't trust those guys. Um, but Cousins ultimately manages to have a human connection with him, to, to talk heart to heart, man to man, and convinces him that Kennedy is serious, like that we can get this deal done. And this is a deal Khrushchev wants. So Khrushchev tells Cousins, I will sign the deal, but Kennedy has to reach out and take the first step. I've been embarrassed once. Kennedy has to do something on record that makes it clear that he can't like then retract it. Um, so Cousins flies back to the White House, explains to Kennedy all of this, um, that they've had this real human connection, that Khrushchev isn't this dictator who can just pound his fist and get what he wants. You know, he has a Politburo. He's got, you know, basically the equivalent of a Congress. He has to convince people to support him. So he tells Kennedy, like, yeah, do, you have to do something. Khrushchev's waiting for a signal from you. And then a month goes by and nothing happens. In fact, the White House seems to be pulling even further back. And in this moment, Kennedy or uh, uh, Cousins writes Kennedy a letter effectively saying, Mr. President, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> like, you're screwing this up. Um, here's what you need to do. You need to take this moment right now and, and give a speech, um, a public speech. This is weirdly how they communicated. They're, they're, until the missile crisis, there's no direct phone line between the White House and the Kremlin. If you want to send a message, you often just give a public speech and you direct it towards Khrushchev. So Cousins says, give a speech, be nice to the Soviet Union, don't call them evil and all of that, um, recognize their position. And ultimately, Cousins writes a 16-page speech, sends it into the White House, and Kennedy loves it, um, decides, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to give a speech. Um, they edit it a little bit. He gives the speech, which is now seen as Kennedy's second most famous speech, not his inaugural about ask not what your country can do for you. Um, the second most one where he's talking about peace for all time. We all have to recognize we all inhabit this planet. A remarkable speech um, that Khrushchev himself calls the most remarkable speech by a U.S. president in the Cold War because it's written by a peace activist. It's written by cousins to the point where internally the protocol is any major policy speech has to be vetted by the State Department, by the Pentagon, by any stakeholder. Kennedy doesn't do that. He doesn't tell anyone he's giving the speech because he doesn't want the Pentagon to water it down and make it more aggressive. So he takes Norman Cousins's ideas, the things he's been writing about for years, polishes them, edits them a little bit, and delivers them. And Khrushchev hears this speech and... To, to compress a little bit, um, agrees to sign the limited nuclear test ban treaty because of this, that this is a clear moment for Kennedy's um, out there. And where this ends, at least this portion of Cousins' life, is Kennedy, so they come together and sign a couple of months later the first anti-nuclear testing treaty, um, one of the few that is technically still in effect today. Um, but Kennedy is so impressed by this that he asked Cousins to, to take a job at the White House, um, come join my administration so we can keep working on um, these, these initiatives. Kennedy privately, internally, 
um, it's coming into an election year now, tells his staff that he's going to stake his reelection on ending the Cold War. Um, he, he, he thinks the signing of the Test Ban Treaty was his biggest achievement in, in office in his first term. Cousins says, yes, I will come work at the White House. I'll be your like peace advocate. But I can't do that. I, I need a couple of months to wind down my job at the, the magazine. I'll join January 1st, 1964. Um, Kennedy is killed November 22nd, 23rd, uh, 1963. Everything falls apart. Cousins, though, has one last mission. Um, in 1964, he returns to the Soviet Union to try to, to get better, you know, get more treaties. Basically, they're going to take this limited test ban treaty and make it a comprehensive test ban treaty um, for the next step. And he goes um, uh, back to the Soviet Union and the Soviets attempt to assassinate Cousins. Uh, and this is the big shocker of the book. Um, Kennedy is dead. Khrushchev is uh, uh, about to be overthrown. We don't know that yet, um, but there are hardliners working to overthrow Khrushchev, partly because he's too weak. He's too conciliatory to the United States. And now that Kennedy's dead and Lyndon Johnson, who's much more hardline, is there. Um, but he, here's this cousin's guy gallivanting around the Soviet Union, trying to convince Khrushchev to be more peaceful. And the Politburo part, some members hate this. So there is some evidence um, that they think that the best way to, to, to prevent this is to cut that link with the United States, this peacemaker, and they poison him. Um, famously, you know, the Russians have a long history of a poisoning their enemies. Um, Cousins falls deathly ill on the flight back. They poison him as he's like leaving the Soviet Union. Um, he nearly dies. He spends a year in the hospital. There's evidence uh, that the doctors find that he was poisoned um, by this bacterium. Um, but Cousins never admits this. Um, he, he chalks this up to it was just a, a rare disease he got um, that it, then he cured himself. He didn't, well, he, he got cured of. He knows personally, he's told family, he's told his doctors that like, I'm pretty sure I was poisoned. Um, the White House knows that. But Cousins is so, so committed to better relations in order to prevent wars and prevent nuclear weapons and testing that he knows if he publicly comes out and accuses the Soviet Union of attempting to assassinate an emissary from the United States, a guy who was close with the U.S. president, um, that that would... That would destroy the relationship. That would would intensify the Cold War. So he keeps this a secret. Um, this assassination attempt—it's uh, wild in a way. It's amazing, and it, it speaks to his to his character and his clarity to be able to once again, just like he did with the dropping of the bombs in Japan, try to uh, understand the gravity of the moment, but at the same time, you have to be able to have a vision beyond that as well. Um, I think that pretty much just lines up with with his character and the character that you portray. Alan, we barely really scratched the surface of of the book. And Cousins is, is an amazing figure, and you do a fantastic job of letting his humanity come through, letting the complexity come through. Because again, it would be easy to just show him as perfect and idle and all this stuff, but you don't. 
And I can't tell you how much I appreciated that to see that struggle in him, that you do a fantastic job of letting him come through. Thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing this information with us. And I, I encourage everyone to, to grab a copy of the book and just, and just enjoy it. Just enjoy an amazing story. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, we could have talked all day. I mean, even the, the the manuscript as originally written was double the length and the editor had me cut it back to this. So there's so much more there. But yeah, I do appreciate having this chance to, to chat with you about it, about this fascinating character that I wish we had more people like today to, you know, promoting peaceful relations in the world. I agree. I agree with that. In a world today of people in search of meaning and purpose, Sometimes the best thing that we can do is read about the lives and works of others. Norman Cousins did not suffer from a lack of meaning and purpose. He carried it with him until his death in 1990. I think something that Cousins teaches us, and Alan as well through his book, is that if you're searching for meaning and purpose, you must first learn to see problems in the world that are greater than your own. Cousins had his share of personal problems, but it never stopped him from being able to see that we are all called to put in work toward either making humanity better or preserving what humanity we have. Just something for you and me to try to keep in mind. Until next time, try to keep one foot firmly planted on neutral ground and have a great day.